You're listening to GlendaleCC.org and to the Glendale Christian KY Podcast on Apple Podcasts. We hope that this message encourages you in your walk to love and follow Jesus. Thank you for listening. Morning. Good to see all of you here. As Tim has so eloquently stated, we did it. (laughs) So uh, thanks for all of those who were a part of the Crossing Festival, especially for those who helped park cars. Um, It can make for a very long day, um, but we really appreciate your help and just the especially for the adults that were part of that. For the kids are going to directly benefit from it because they're going to get cheaper costs, but for the adults that um, were part of that, your presence here yesterday was just another sign of your investment in, our, in the next generation of Glendale Christian Church. And so I appreciate very much your, your being here and, and just helping out with everything. Uh, Today we are continuing in our series, Monsters, Inc. Uh, In this series, we're talking about the monsters that we face in life and how we overcome them. I want to remind you that we still have our monster picture opportunity over here. And so you can can get your picture with your family or whatever over there by our photo set. And we'd we'd encourage you to take advantage of that. I'm going to tell a real quick story that just happened. Uh, As Jamie and Jaren were coming in, somebody put the fat heads in the doors and I didn't know that but I happened to just go out, step outside to, to blow my nose for just a second and saw that and uh, as they were coming in one of their kids said monster and Jamie said no that's not a monster that's Bobby and, <laughs> and it's like I was just glad it wasn't Adam so so anyway we're, we're in this series Monsters Inc and Two weeks ago, we began by talking about the monster of fear and how we overcome fear. In fact, we said that Jesus, his entire teaching on fear could be narrowed down to two words, and it was fear not. And and this idea of fear not, we can fear not because of the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus validates everything that Jesus taught about himself, especially what he taught about fear, and what he taught about fear was fear not. And so I've got some great news for you this morning as we uh, get into the second part of, of this series. The odds say that you are, statistically, you're not likely to die in an avalanche. Seriously, avalanches, I mean, in certain parts of the United States, that's a big deal. And avalanches kill about 30 people per year in the United States, which means that you're looking really good. For, for avoiding a demise of that kind of nature. Still, I'd be remiss if I didn't let you know that you could still die in an avalanche. And, and if that actually did happen to you, I wouldn't want your lack of preparation to be on my conscience. So I'm going to give you a piece of advice for how to survive, uh, how to survive an avalanche. And it's this. Spit first, dig second. Okay? Spit first, dig second. That's, that's your advice for how to survive an avalanche because as it turns out people make this very big mistake when they're caught in an avalanche it turns out that they dig first and here's the thing about digging first in snow is that you can't just immediately to blind dig the the dig part it's a good idea but you can't just start digging without spitting because in fact popular science magazine wrote about one such victim that, that dug first and didn't spit first they dug first they said when rescue teams found their body they discovered that in his attempt to dig out he'd actually dug some 30 feet deeper the victim expended every ounce of energy that he had to get himself farther from his intended goal 
If only he had spit first. Now, some of you still have this look on your face like, I don't understand why he keeps saying spit first. Well, here's the thing. If, if you're covered in snow, there's nearly no way to tell which direction is up and which direction is down. You, there's just no way. But gravity still applies. So if you spit, you know, clear out a little bit of snow from your face, and if you spit and it goes straight down, then you're facing down. You need to turn over. If you spit and it goes to the left or the right, you're sideways, and you can rotate. If you spit straight up and it comes down and lands in your face, it may be the only time you ever want to spit in your own face. But if it lands in your face, then you know you're facing up and it's okay to start digging. So you want to dig first or spit first and dig second. When Jesus came on the scene as a rabbi, there was a lot of directional confusion. Up seemed to be down. Down seemed to be up. People were trying to find, find the light, that, but it just seemed to be, they just seemed to be digging themselves deeper. It was, it was a time of confusion, much like today. And as it, it's what the Bible calls the fullness of time. And when Jesus came, he came to set the compass of directions once and for all. When Jesus set things in order, sometimes it sounded like he was holding the map upside down, though. Consider what he says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 5. He says, God blesses those who are humble, for they will inherit the whole earth. Now, we hear that with 21st century ears, don't we? God blesses those who are humble. And it, com it comes across as kind of some sort of irony because the humble are inheriting the earth, really? Because it, do it doesn't seem that way because when we look at the world around us, it looks an awful lot like the CEOs and the Hollywood stars and the reality stars, you know, the Kardashians. They're the ones who are, who are going to be inheriting all the earth. They're the ones that seem like they have all the dibs on everything. Humble isn't the word that comes to mind when we think of those people, right? Yet Jesus insists on this idea. In fact, in Luke 18, which is where we're going to spend uh, most of our time today in Scripture. So if you've got a Bible, flip on over there to Luke 18. Luke 18, verse 14, he says, For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Jesus doubles down on this idea that those who are humble will, will inherit the earth. They will be the ones that are exalted. It's a radical reversal. And it really sounds great, doesn't it? The overlooked ones, the quiet ones, the, the ones we tend to forget are in the room, they're going to have their day. The, the demanding ones, the entitlement crowd, they're going to be thrown under the bus, so to speak. We'd love to put Humble God Day on the calendar, wouldn't we? But when does that actually happen, Jesus, and, and how? Jesus says that the way up is down, that greatness is humility, not pride. And in Luke 18, Jesus tells a story he tells a parable to help us compare these two directional systems. He is his directional system and the world's directional system. It's a story of two men. One is a Pharisee. And the Pharisees were a group of people that, that were reacting against the increasing religious compromise of the Israelite people. And so, quite understandably, they wanted to bring back that old-time religion, so to speak. And it, just because it was being lost in the, the cultural upheaval of the time. People looked up to the Pharisees. These were the guys who were, who were sold out. They were committed to the Hebrew law. They, were, they tended to be upstanding and, and educational and influential men. We'd place them at the top of the social scale. They're, they're at the top. Down at the bottom, we'd find the other guy in this story. He's a tax collector. And we've often been told to think of biblical tax collectors as, as an IRS agent. But that really doesn't accurately describe how the people felt about tax collectors in those days. Because in those days, a tax collector would go and they would collect taxes for the, the enemy Rome, the enemy empire of Rome. But also with the Roman Empire authority, they would collect more money to line their own pockets. And so really, we would think of them as like an IRS agent 
who worked for ISIS. They, they were that much of an enemy. And so Jesus begins telling this story in Luke 18. As two men walk into a temple. Sounds like a start to a bad joke, doesn't it? Two men walk into a temple. One, the kind that you would point out to your son and you'd say, Hey, look at this guy. He, he's the real deal. We, you, need to, you need to watch him and you need to try and emulate him. That's the kind of guy I want you to grow up and be. The other, you would point to your son and say, Hey, pick up some rocks because if he gets too close, we're going to hit him with them, okay? And Jesus tells us who, who the crowd is. So to really understand the story, we've got to understand who Jesus is talking to. And he clues us into that on verse 9. He says about the crowd, they were confident of their own righteousness and they looked down on everyone else. Now when I read that, I think, wow, that's a loaded description. They were confident of their own righteousness and they looked down on everyone else. The word smug kind of comes to mind when, when I read that. And things would have gotten a little uncomfortable as Jesus began telling this parable about the Pharisee and the tax collector because everyone would have known who Jesus was talking about. Everyone would have immediately picked out the characters in the story and they would, they would have identified with, with someone. So there's an awkward tension that develops immediately. But here's the thing. When we read something like this, it's easy to think of everybody else who fits the bill, right? It, we almost immediately assume this description is about someone else, that it's not, not about ourselves. And so we begin to assign these descriptors to, to other people. And we are, when we do that, we ourselves become the very people that Jesus is describing. Everyone in the crowd recognized the characters that Jesus describes, but, the, but did they see the target on their own clothing? When we hear a good zinger in church, we often we, we think, Oh, I hope that person sitting on the other side is listening. I hope they take that to heart, right? Or, or maybe wives, sometimes you hear something, you kind of nudge your, nudge your husband, hey, pay attention to that, right? But, but do we ever actually think, does this fit me? Does this fit me? We're always eager to point out that it fits somebody else. In fact, I'll say I'm guilty of this. I went to a leadership conference uh, with uh, a, a former acquaintance, and we, were, we, we had spent the whole day listening to these to really excellent leaders talking and every time they would say something I thought man I hope this guy's listening to this and in fact even when we got back uh, one of our elders asked me how I thought it went and I said well it was really good I hope he listened and he took notes and that's what I said and and the elder asked me what if we'd had any conversation about it and I said well yeah we did and it turns out I think he thought all of that applied to me and so we both were in that kind of same boat we're like I hope he takes notes and I hope he's taking notes when really we should have been going how does this fit me and so Jesus begins this story two guys walk into a temple and both of them have come to pray the Pharisee, the respected religious leader, and just really all-around good guy, he lifts up a prayer about himself. Here's how his prayer goes, verses 11 and 12. It says, God, I thank you, which if we stopped right there would probably be a good place to start, right? God, I thank you. But notice what he thanks God for. I thank you that I'm not like other people. I'm not like the robbers and the evildoers and the adulterers or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. Apparently, he was peeking during his prayer. He kind of, he looked, he starts his prayer and then he looks up because he spots the tax collector and he uses him as a prop to stand up his, on, on extra righteousness for himself. And then he adds on how much he, he fasts and how much he tithes. He's like he's putting his religious resume together for, for God to approve of. Here's something you need to know about Pharisees. 
because they lived in a time in which people were, were losing, much, uh, losing touch with much of their religious heritage, they were, they were obsessive over religious rules. I mean, you go back and you read Leviticus and there's all these laws and the Pharisees had them all memorized. They, they knew them all. And because they obsessed over them, because other people seemed to ignore them, they became like this kind of roaming gotcha patrol. It's like they were just walking around trying to point out when somebody had, had messed up. And that, that's how the Pharisees, who, who began with all sorts of good intentions, they, they really did, they started with good intentions, they began to push the faith of the Israelites to, to really an unbearable and, and almost I- infinite collection of do's and don'ts. Mostly don'ts. But God had given those rules for the sake of the people, but in the Pharisees' mind, God had given those rules for the sake of the rules. People lived for the sake of the rules. And, did you, and notice again how, how the prayer begins. God, I thank you. And again, that would be a good place to start, wouldn't it? But, but it seems like it was, he was thanking God for himself. God, thank you that you have, you, you have given the miracle of me. That's, that's kind of what this Pharisee does here. He's, he's so thankful for himself. And then he adds all of the members of the sinner's club to, to this prayer to make himself look even better. And of course, we think we would never pray anything like that, right? We, we would never do that. We would never pray, at least not out loud anyway. But I, but I just feel compelled to point out that once we've said or thought those kind of things, we've just convicted ourselves. It's kind of a trap, isn't it? That, that, that this big issue with pride versus humility, it, it, it's kind of a trap. That, because fake humility, fake humility expresses itself in a pride that is obvious to everyone but the speaker. Everybody else sees through it, but the one that's, that's expressing it, they have no idea. The Bible says that the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. And we're going to talk even more about that next week. But the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. The key to understanding our, our inner Pharisee, and we all have one at some, at some level, the key to understanding our, our inner Pharisee is that he's all about performance. That, that of course, that's the part of us that, that other people see, what we actually do. We tend to focus on appearances because that's basic human nature. We all, we all look in the mirror, right? We all, before we go out somewhere, we, we make sure that we look presentable, we look decent, right? Or at least most of us do, unless you're going to Walmart. If you're going to Walmart, you don't have to do that. But, but most of us do that, right? Because we're focused on appearances. It's, it's human nature. And the Pharisee, the Pharisee is the master of that. If he can make life into a religious tournament, that's a competition he can win. So he stresses religion based on following rules and, and getting things done. He's you know, fasting and then blogging about it or, or giving big bucks to, to the church and then writing the signature on the check extra large so that everybody knows who signed that check. When your identity is, is wrapped around what other people think about you, your faith has to be something that happens in plain sight where everybody sees it so nobody misses a single pious act. Jesus said in Matthew 23 that everything they do is for other people to see. That's the best definition of the Pharisee life that I think I, I could come up with, that I could find. And, and obviously Jesus came up with it. He says they do everything for other people to see. Here's the, here's the great danger of performance-based faith. When we begin to receive those, those rounds of public applause for all of our accomplishments, when we begin to, to, um, to bask in, in the accolades of other people that, that they throw on us, we start to believe the charade. We start to believe our own publicity. 
In, in Bible times, Pharisees were so good with rules and they were so good with all of these uh, religious acts that they became legends in their own minds. Yet nobody else believed it. It wasn't real. It, it wasn't real. In fact, we know it wasn't real because the Messiah stood right in front of them. And they couldn't recognize him. They didn't recognize that this was all of those verses that they had memorized from the Old Testament were about this one man. And when he stood face to face with them, they didn't know who he was. They didn't recognize him. It was all in their own minds. It's easy to slam those leaders when we look at it from a 21st century perspective until we make the appropriate translations and, and figure out how, all, how it all fits into our culture. Because... If we're honest, we tend to hype ourselves. We do it through a lot of different ways, but probably the most prevalent way right now is social media. We, we, we boast all of these things on social media. And I'll tell you, I love social media. It has become one of the, the hallmarks of my generation, and, and I really don't know what if, if our, my generation and the generations coming behind me could function without it. it just, it's become that much of a staple of, of our culture and our life. But here's the thing about social media. It is designed to show us at our very best. It is designed to show us at our best. It's a form of, of self-publicity, and we control what we post. And so because we control what we post, we tend to only post what we really want other people to see. A while back, I was uh, meeting with a couple of guys, and, and one guy I didn't know at all, and one guy I, I would say we are loose acquaintances but we're friends on Facebook and so he was he was introducing me to to the guy that I we were meeting with and he uh he made a comment about how well he thought he knew me and I was like really because we don't really know each other at all like we're friends on Facebook and that's all that you know about me all that you know about me is what I post on social media so you don't really know me we're we're just acquaintances but because he only knows me through Facebook, he only knows the good things about me. I don't post bad stuff about me, right? I don't post any, you know, hey, I really blew it with my kids this week, or I really blew it with my wife, or, or that sermon was awful. I don't post any of that stuff, right? I, I post good things on Facebook. So all he knows about me are, is the things that I want him to know about me. And so we're aware of this. We, we, we kind of we become aware of this, and so, so we, we try not to be so proud, Right? Uh, Facebook has a thing called Facebook Memories. I love Facebook Memories. It's probably my favorite thing about Facebook. But when I go back and I, I read some of the things that I posted, I'm a little bit embarrassed about them because they reek of pridefulness and, and there's nothing humble about them. And so I'm a little embarrassed about that. And so because of that, we and people, I think, pick up on those kind of things and, and in their own lives. And so we try to... I, we try to post things where we can show the best of ourselves but still be a little humble. And so we've developed this thing called the humble brag. Anybody familiar with the humble brag? All right, yeah, so you might post something like completely exhausted from this wild and crazy vacation that we had. And when you post that, the, you think the key word is exhausted, like I'm, I'm just so tired. But what you really want people to know is that you had a big-time vacation. Like that, that's the humble brag. And so... We, we do this without even thinking about it. And when we do it, we stand in front of as many people as possible and make much of ourselves. The Pharisees did this too. They didn't have social media, so they didn't maybe do the, the humble brag on, online, but they did it in their prayers and they did it through comparisons. 
Let me ask you this question. Who do you measure yourself against? Who do you compare yourself to? If you're interested in becoming a better person or, or better at your job, you compare up, right? You look at people who, who are at the top of their game. And so you compare yourselves to them. You, you look for someone who inspires you. Someone that could teach you a thing or two. But if you've got a pride issue, you, you, you wouldn't do that. You would compare yourself, you would compare yourself, but you wouldn't compare up, you would compare yourself down, right? You would compare yourself to people who made you feel better about yourself. Let me tell you this, pride is best friends with insecurity. Pride is best friends with insecurity. And we see this in the story that Jesus tells. The Pharisee compares down because he wants God to see him in the best possible light. He doesn't look to other spiritual leaders or to the prophets of the Old Testament. He doesn't even look to, to Jesus. He compares himself with the lowest available strata in, in, on the social spectrum. The guy who is just above the cockroaches. It speaks volumes that the substance of this man's prayer is comparison. But it's how the Pharisee thinks because his faith is all about performance. And since it's all about performance, he evaluates himself by the worst possible performers imaginable. The greatest danger in life, the greatest danger in life is anything other than Jesus that becomes a foundation for our confidence. If, if, Jesus, if it's anything other than Jesus is, is the foundation for our confidence, then, then we're on faulty foundation. We're on, we're on a sandy foundation. We're not on stone. We, that foundation will crumble. And all of our faith, all of our religion that we've built uh, on that faulty foundation, it will crumble with it. Performance-based uh, religion is a false foundation. And it's the choice of many of us who grew up in the church. Many of us who grew up in the church, we learned all about the do's and the don'ts. And we live our lives based off what we're off all those rules that we're supposed to be following. And we miss out on the grace and the mercy that Jesus offers to, to all of these, all of us, including the least of these. We may not offer the same prayer that the Pharisee did, but we tend to have our righteous resumes available on, on a moment's notice. It's just so easy to point out what, what we do, the, the stuff on the outside. But Jesus, Jesus is not interested on, in who we are on the outside. He's interested in who we are on the inside, where only He can see where nothing can be faked. And in that prayer that was offered by the Pharisee, we're clued into to the source of pride for the Pharisee. Four times the Pharisee used this first-person pronoun, I. He said, I thank you. That, that I am not like other people. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. If, if there's a pride index, if there's a pride index, it's the number of times you use uh, the first person pronouns per hundred words. Let's, so just think about that. The next time you're using all of these first person pronouns, that, that's your pride index, okay? Leviticus 16, it reminds us that fasting one day annually was required by God's law. So his, his comment that he fasts is not a bad thing, right? But this Pharisee, our Pharisee in the story, he fasts twice a week. That's more than a hundred times more than God asked of him. So is God really keeping score that way? Is God up there with a scorecard? Okay, well, Adam fasted this, this week, so he's good for the year. But, but Ken, he fasted twice a week, so he's good for like the next 20 years, right? No, is, is God really keeping score that way? Is there some sort of MVP for, uh, award for, for days fasting? Not if it's not from the heart. Warren Wearsby writes, The great sin of the Pharisees was hypocrisy based on pride. Their religion was external, not internal. 
It was to impress people not to please God. They bound people with heavy burdens while Christ came to set people free. They loved titles and public recognition, and they exalted themselves at the expense of others. And meanwhile, at the back of the temple, in this parable, is, is the tax collector. And his prayer begins much differently. Luke 18, 13 says, his prayer started, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. It's fascinating that, that Jesus details the body language. Where the Pharisee stands and draws attention to himself, the tax collector stands at a distance. If you're putting on a show, if you're a performer, you never stand at a distance, right? You're always up front. And then we read that the tax collector, he, he wouldn't even look up to the heavens. He was aware uh, uh, of his unworthiness before God. We also hear that he beat his chest, and, and, and that's just a sign that it wasn't lip service. It, it wasn't just going through the motions. This man is mourning his sin, and his prayer is no more than just a few words, but those few words offer a picture of humility from the inside out. This man has come to, come to the temple for a real encounter with God, to, to experience God in a way that maybe he had never experienced God before. And, and he does, and no one else matters in that moment. He stands off to himself, and he has this powerful experience of a man who, who knows just who he is and just who God is. The Pharisee, he thinks he's on, on the He's on the world stage and he is a player performing for, for an audience of, of one person, an audience of God admiring his applause. Not only does he follow all the rules correctly, but he, but he even adds new ones. He's a, he's a righteous overachiever, so to speak. He's scrambling up the ladder and pushing off everyone that, that might be in his way. And yet God is not impressed. God wants us to sit in his theater and to behold his glory. The, t the tax collector understands this. He is, he's broken and he's humbled by the majesty of God. And, that all that he, and all that he can do is just plead for mercy and, and beg for grace. And he acknowledges the toll of sin that, that has been on his life. And as, Jewish, as Jesus finish, finishes out the story, he hands out the grades for, for the, the characters in the play. The religious expert, he gets an F. The stammering wretch, the tax collector, he gets an A. And the tax collector goes home, just, goes home justified before God. And for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all those who humble themselves will be exalted. Jesus turns the directional map upside down. Now here's what I know about people. People come to church looking for solutions, right? People come looking for answers for whatever problems they have, whether it's debt or addiction or failed marriage or whatever it is. Sooner or later you want action steps, right? Well, you, you, you want to know, what can, what can I do? We always assume that the answer is in the word do. And sometimes we have some do's and sometimes we have some don'ts that we can, that we can give out. But the truth is that there's, there's no substitute for humbling ourselves. Someone is, is probably thinking, sure, be more humble, but, but I, I get that. But what can I do? You know, what can I do to be more humble? Uh, it's so much easier to do than it is to be. To do is to take some action, but to be, that requires real transformation. But you want to know what to do? Okay, well, let's try. Stand at a distance and beat your chest and pray this, God, have mercy on me and mean it. You want some don'ts? Okay. Don't make your case. 
And don't pull out your, your religious resume. And don't ask for blessings by comparing yourself to, to others. Don't congratulate God on having you as His child. And don't thank God for all the hard work that you've put in. There is no substitute for humbling yourself before God. Don't miss these four words at the end of, the, at the end of this parable. Those who humble themselves. Being humble is something that we think of as a passive activity that, that somebody or something does to us. We are humbled by something. You know, we, if we live long enough, at some point you will be humbled by someone or something. We, we are humbled by unemployment. We're humbled by failed relationships, by dreams shattered. But Jesus speaks of humbling that is active, that we are the humblers, that we play a, a role in this process. This isn't something that, that we wait for it to happen it, or to occur naturally. We have a part in this. Nick Walenda, if, if you might be familiar with him, he got huge TV ratings a few years ago. In 2012, Nick Walenda was the first man to walk across Niagara Falls on a high wire. And then in 2013, he became the first man to walk across the Grand Canyon on a high wire. Now, now Walenda is a strong, a strong Christian. So how does a strong Christian like, like Nick Walenda handle the problem of pride? How do you humble yourself when, when you're the, the best in the world at something and millions of people literally tune in to watch your every step? How, how do you handle pride? Huge crowds come to these events, and, and like huge crowds always do, they leave loads of garbage behind themselves. And so after his walk, Nick Walenda, he doesn't head for a limousine. He spends hours walking, walking the grounds, picking up the trash that's been left behind. He said this. He said, three hours of cleaning up debris is good for my soul. Humility doesn't come naturally to me, so I have to force myself into situations that are humbling. So be it. I do it because if I don't serve others, I will only serve my ego. That's a pretty good practice. If I don't serve others, I'll only serve my ego. That's some, a good thing to remember. Even if you're not a high-wire high walker, pride goes before the fall, right? And the ultimate answer for the pride problem is simply found in the person of Jesus. We're shown this in Philippians 2. This is what we're going to close with. Philippians chapter 2, verse 6, is, 6 and 8. It says, Being in very nature God, Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be used to His own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance of man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. This is the masterwork of humility. What Christ did, he, he made himself nothing. He humbled himself. This was something who, someone who was, who was in very nature, who in his very essence was God, but he didn't cling on to that status. Rather, he made himself nothing. Here's why this is a big deal, because all of our relationships, the most important relationship is our relationship with Jesus. And the, thing, the one thing that constantly gets in the way of my relationship with Jesus is me. It's me. So if I want to improve my relationship with the Lord, I have to humble myself. That means confessing my sin voluntarily, not just when I get caught, right? It means treating others better than myself, serving others, not just my ego. It means that I ask for help. So let me ask you, what is required of you for you to humble yourself? You want to overcome the monster of pride in your life? Then humble yourself before the Lord, because the problem with pride is me. 
It's I. That's the problem with pride. Let me pray for us. Father God, we love you. And uh, Father, we, we just confess right now that we're a proud people. And, and I'm not talking about the kind of proud where we're proud of, of our kids or our grandkids or we're proud of what somebody else has done. I'm, not talking, about, I'm talking about the pride that, that keeps us from being close to you. And so, Father, I just I, I, I confess that to you, and I just pray that you would forgive us for, for our, our pridefulness, and that you would remove it from us, and that we would begin to humble ourselves before you, that we wouldn't wait on, on other people or other things to come and humble us, that we would humble ourselves every day before you, that we would take the attitude of Jesus, that we, we, we have to be nothing so that we can be like him. Father, we live in a, in a world that is full of pride. And because of that, it's, it's easy to let the world rub off on us and, and, and just be proud people. So, Father, would you give us the boldness for, to, to stop that trend and for us to be humble people and for that to rub off on the rest of the world? that we would be the, the agents of change, that we would be the trendsetters, that we would be the, the people that, that start this new movement of humbleness, of meekness, of, of, of serving others and not self-seeking. Father, would we be that, those people? Thank you for giving us the example of Jesus and, and, and just his whole life demonstrating the, the way to be humble. And so, Father, we thank you for him. We thank you for the grace and the mercy that we find at the foot of the cross. And it's in the powerful name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.